0: I asked him to sing that song for us because it fits so perfectly with what we're going to learn this morning in the Word. Well, Pastor Andrew sends his Christmas greetings to you. He and the family are away this week. He'll be back next week, but a Merry Christmas from him. And this morning, I have the chance to look into the Word with you on this Christmas Sunday. I know it's a unique one, and we have things to do, traditions to keep, and the natives, known as the kids, will be getting restless, I'm sure. But... Uh, We're going to dive into the Word for just a moment and hopefully be encouraged, leave here encouraged on this Christmas morning. Well, how many of you, raise your hand if you have a tradition or if at some point in this Christmas season you watched the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. How many of you watched that movie? Okay, I see a few people. How many of you watched some version of A Christmas Carol? Some version. I like this animated one. Some of you are more Muppets Christmas Carol sort of people. That's all right as well. Uh, Okay, so we we have these movies that we traditionally watch, these stories we engage in. And you know what's interesting about these and and other Christmas stories is that even though Christmas is supposed to be this time of year with wonder and joy, these stories are are very dark and and sometimes very sad. Uh, Why is that? I think it's because we all know Christmas claims to be this jolly good time of year, and yet it always, always disappoints us. Perhaps you've experienced that already this morning as you opened gifts and realized maybe you didn't get quite what you wanted or as much as you wanted, I don't know. But perhaps more seriously, it's also a time that reminds us of things we've lost, perhaps people we've lost, relationships that have been frayed. So it's no wonder we think of these dark instances, these heavy moments during Christmas. After all, the account of the first Christmas had those same elements in it. And we read one account from the Gospel of Luke. We also have the Gospel of Matthew. And we find there, there's the dirty manger, the dirty shepherds, and, and then Herod's murdering rampage. There's some, some sad elements to the first Christmas story. So instead of looking this morning at a feel-good, Hallmark movie-style Christmas story, I know some of you like that, and that's all right, but instead of looking at a story like that, let's look together at one that's a bit more realistic to our lives. Not the Christmas story. We will get there to the Christmas story, don't you worry. Uh, But instead, let's go to perhaps the most unlikely passage of all for a Christmas sermon, and that is Job chapter 9. Turn there if you would. If you have a copy of the word or or Google it, you can find it fairly easily. The book of Job, looks like Job, chapter 9. Do you know much about the story of Job? Maybe it's unfamiliar to you. Maybe you're vaguely familiar with it. It takes place a long time ago, probably 2,000 or more years before the birth of Christ, so around the time of Abraham. And it's actually remarkably like this movie, It's a Wonderful Life. So like George Bailey, Job suffers greatly. He loses his wealth, his kids, his own health. And like George Bailey, Job despairs of his life. He loses hope. He argues with his friends about the meaning of life and the meaning of suffering. And also like George Bailey, at the end of the book, Job's family, friends show up to help him, to encourage him, and Job is restored. And there is a happy ending to the book of Job. It's a great book to read if maybe you felt the stress of this Christmas season or this year great complement to what we've been studying in the Psalms and the laments. Really, the whole book of Job is is a form of lament where Job wrestles with why God would allow bad things to happen to seemingly good people. Both Christians and non-Christians find this book very accessible because it's very real to our lives and the difficulties we face. But the book's also complicated, which is also real to life. There's no neat and tidy answers here. I encourage you to read the whole thing in the new year, if you're looking for something to read. In fact, you may be here and not know much about Christianity, or maybe you're questioning and and wrestling with this whole faith system. This would be a great book to study. Of course, a gospel like John would be great as well, but this book will surprise you in what it describes about God and truth. We're going to launch into the middle of the book, most of which is taken up by these speeches between Job and his three friends. His first two friends have spoken, and they say, Job, you're suffering because you must be some secret sinner. This is God punishing you. But Job says, I'm innocent. Job's second friend, Bildad, in chapter 8, right before this, he even accuses Job's kids of being terrible, and that's why they died. What a terrible way to encourage someone. Maybe you've experienced that in a time of suffering in your own life. People say insensitive things, and, and they really discourage you. Well, let's jump in here and read Job's response to Bildad in Job chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Then Job answered, Yes, I know what you've said is true, but how can a person be justified before God? If one wanted to take him to court, he could not answer God once in a thousand times. God is wise and all-powerful. Who has opposed him and come out unharmed? He removes mountains without their knowledge, overturning them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place so that its pillars tremble. He commands the sun not to shine and seals off the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He makes the stars, the bear, Orion, the Pleiades, and the constellations of the southern sky. He does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. If he passed by me, I wouldn't see him. If he went by, I wouldn't recognize him. If he snatches something, who can stop him? Who can ask him, what are you doing? God does not hold back his anger. Rahab's assistants cringe in fear beneath him. How then can I answer him or choose my arguments against him? Even if I were in the right, I could not answer. I could only beg my judge for mercy. If I summoned him and he answered me, I do not believe he would pay attention to what I said. He batters me with a whirlwind and multiplies my wounds without cause. He doesn't let me catch my breath, but fills me with bitter experiences. If it is a matter of strength, look, he is the powerful one. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Even if I were in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, my mouth would declare me guilty. Though I am blameless, I no longer care about myself. I renounce my life. It is all the same. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When catastrophe brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. The earth is handed over to the wicked. He blindfolds its judges. If it isn't he, then who is it? Skip down to verse 32. For he, God, is not a man like me that I can answer him, that we can take each other to court. There is no mediator between us to lay his hand on both of us. Let him take his rod away from me so his terror will no longer frighten me. Then I would speak and not fear him. But that is not the case. I am on my own. See, he sound like things maybe you've said in a moment of suffering? Maybe not said out loud, but maybe thought about God? The whole book of Job could be summarized in the word, Behold. The word behold. Now, kids, you are going to have to help me out this morning. I have a job for you to do. Every time I say the word behold, I want you to get yourself a pair of binoculars. Just like this. Go ahead and try it. Adults, you are welcome to do it as well. Get yourself a pair of binoculars, kind of like that there. Maybe you got a pair for Christmas. I don't know if that's the sort of thing you want. Yeah, whenever I say behold, I want you to hold up binoculars because that's kind of what it means to behold something, to look very closely at something. It's a fancy way of saying we see something. We've seen it in in many Christmas songs. In fact, two of them we've sung this morning, the one Dale uh, just sang. We focus on something. And in these speeches, Job maintains his innocence, but he begins accusing God of wrong because he takes his little binoculars and puts them on his suffering, on his suffering. He beholds his suffering more than he beholds, get your binoculars out, his God and that always leads to wandering but when we lift our eyes we take our binoculars we behold god we lift them up that leads to wandering wandering but here first we'll see job zero in on his suffering and it's a truth for us as well when we behold our suffering behold our suffering above all we'll wander from what's true we'll wander from what's true what does it mean to wander Wander is kind of a cool word these days, after all, Tolkien said, not all who wander are lost. It's kind of this cool, we're going to wander, we're going to travel, we're going to see the cool sights. And, And that does sound cool, but when you're wandering from God, it's not cool, it's dangerous. When you're wandering from the truth. And that's what Job does here. Wandering... Here's a picture for you to get the idea, kind of like your dog in the backyard. Now, this is not your dog because we did not get snow. Hope you weren't hoping for that. Uh, But maybe this gives you the idea, use your imagination, as if we got snow and your dog's running out there back and forth. That's wandering. There's no purpose. There's no direction. And here we see two specific ways Job wanders when it comes to God. First, he accuses God of being distant, of being displeased with him, staying far away from him. He's aloof. He doesn't get me. Have you ever said that maybe about your parents? They don't get me. That's what Job is saying about God in these first half of this chapter. He rightfully speaks of God having vast power, moves mountains, walks on the water, makes the stars. But in verse 10 and following, this great God can't be seen. I can't see him. I can't behold him. Get your binoculars back out. I can't behold him. God's just up there. He's just chilling. He doesn't have a care in the world for we poor humans below, except when he's angry with us, and only then do we feel his presence. That's what Job accuses God of. He can't win against him. Even if we think he's being unfair, he's too strong. And so this leads him to a second conclusion about God. In the second half of the chapter, God is cruel, says Job. In fact, he even goes so far to say that God doesn't have justice. God condemns both the righteous and the wicked. If it isn't him, Job says, then who is it that does these terrible things that Job is experiencing? Cruel, uncaring. So Job has no hope. He gives up hope. Have you ever had thoughts or experiences like this in a season of your life? I think most of us do at some point. Maybe you're saying at this point, wow, Matt, what a downer of a Christmas message for us. But stay with me. We have a glimmer of hope here in this chapter, in verses 32 to 35, we see Job has one small glimmer of hope, and he longs for a mediator. He says, God's not a man, but if only there could be someone who could bridge the gap between me and this great, awesome God. If only there could be a mediator. What's a mediator? Maybe you've never heard the term before. It's like an umpire or maybe a referee in a sports game. Or perhaps, like when you and your brother or sister are fighting and mom or dad has to come and kind of separate you and say, hey, what's going on? The mom or dad has to come in between you and the person you're arguing with. That's a mediator. Step in and try to resolve things. This is an interesting desire for Job to have. Does he ever see it fulfilled? Does God ever answer him? Does he find out why he suffers? Well, let's go to the very end of the story of Job and we'll see there that Job indeed hears from God in fact Job sees God he beholds God get your binoculars out he beholds him but the answers are not quite what he's longing for what he's looking for instead he finds as he beholds God he turns his binoculars up to see God his questions start to fade and he's lost in wonder so if we behold our God above all we will wonder Not wonder, we'll wonder. What does it mean to wonder? Well, another snow picture for you, as if it wasn't bad enough the first time. Uh, Picture a child standing out in the snow, maybe for the first time, because they're a poor southern child, and and we don't get to experience this very much. Uh, The child sees the snow. Oh, wow, it's amazing. Just that look of wonder, the jaw drops. That's what we're talking about here. And if we do that for things like snow, how much more should we do that when we experience our God? At the end of the book, we see Job being both right and wrong in the things he claimed about God back in chapter 9. He was right. God is indeed great. In fact, when God shows up, he takes Job on what the Bible project calls a virtual reality tour of the universe. As if God hands Job a set of VR glasses. Maybe you got some of these for Christmas. And and he says, Job, look at this. I'm going to show you this aspect of creation. The ostrich, the horse, and then these great creatures like behemoth and leviathan. Look at all these things I made and tell me what you think. Can you make or control those creatures? Were you there at the beginning? In fact, interestingly, in chapter 44 through 5, he says, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. So, Job's right. He couldn't win an argument against God. God's great. He's a sovereign king of all creation. But, Job was wrong. That does not mean that God is distant or cruel. No, God's not distant. He draws near. He's not cruel, he cares. He cares. For Job, God draws near to him in the form of a whirlwind, or you could say a tornado. Uh, And he's making a point to him about his power. But this whirlwind doesn't come to destroy Job like Job thought it would. In fact, God just appears in this whirlwind to speak to him and invite Job to speak to him back. Let's have a hearing. Let's have a talk. That's what you wanted, Job. Job was wrong. God isn't distant, unconcerned with our lives. God draws near. And how does Job respond? Well, he repents of accusing God of wrong. And when he does so, he says something interesting in 42, verse 5. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, God. Or you could say, now my eye beholds you. And as he beholds God, he is left with wonder. But when he beheld only his suffering, he wandered. And when Job repents, God doesn't unleash his anger. God has compassion on Job. God restores Job to what he lost. But we're still left with uncomfortable questions. Is God so great, he can only come so close to us? Like he has to come in the form of a whirlwind. He can't come very, very close to us. He can only come so close. Sure, there's... I do understand seems pretty terrible, God. Is the answer just to, to trust God? Is that all we get? How do we know for sure God cares? How can we know it for a fact that God cares for us? And that's where we bring it to the Christmas story. I told you we'd get there. Here we are. Let's bring it forward 2,000 years to the passage Pastor Robert read for us. There God comes down. Jesus is born, but he comes not in a whirlwind this time. He comes in what? He comes in a manger. Not in a whirlwind. He comes as a baby in a manger. Talk about drawing near to us. Interestingly, Job seems to have a hint that something like this would happen. Back in chapter 19, 25 through 27, he says something interesting. He says, For I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Job speaks of seeing his Redeemer, God himself, standing on earth so that he can actually see and behold him. Does that ever happen for Job? Well, in part, he sees him in the whirlwind, but, but we're left wondering, is God going to stand upon the earth? But those who were there that first Christmas, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, they got to see God they saw God standing on the earth as Job predicted. But interestingly enough, God came as a baby who couldn't actually stand. He had to grow and learn how to stand and walk just like my baby and your baby has to do. How incredible! How could this be? Job could only hope for this, but those people got to behold God made man. And what did they do when they saw him? They wondered. They wondered. The shepherds had to tell everyone. They were in awe and wonder. If you doubt that God cares about your suffering, remember that he chose to come down and embrace our weary world. No other worldview, no other religion, no other faith system has this incredible idea that we believe in the Bible where God becomes a man, comes down that far to save us from sin. Sure, there's cruel gods in the Roman religion who would come down, but they'd come down to attack people or to vent their anger. Only in Christianity do we have God come down to save us from our sin. Last year I read a a blog article that really helped me capture the wonder of Christ's birth, and maybe it'll help you as well. In the country of India, as you may know, there are these caste systems, and the lowest of this system are the untouchables, and the lowest of those... Are what are called the banji people these folks do things no one else wants to do perhaps the worst job ever conceived of they clean out sewers they drop in the manholes no gloves no mask they scoop out filth what if i told you the richest billionaire in all of india suddenly gave up all his money his wealth, his privilege, his status, his social standing to become one of these people, the Banji, To enter into that job in order to try to save them, full knowing that they would not accept him and they would, in fact, kill him when he went down to their level. That would be crazy. That would be such a huge jump. It's just unheard of in our world. But, friends, that's not even close to the incredible distance between us as humans and the holy God. From the highest heights, God and his holiness and his power, the maker of the stars, the the walker on the sea, the person who created all, came down to the lowest low and was born as a human. As Philippians 2 describes it, he didn't just come down to be born as a human, he came to be a servant, to be a slave. And not only that, but he came to die the worst possible death you could ever imagine. He died on the cross. We would recoil at becoming someone like the Banji, but we know we humans are all made in God's image and all have value. So how much more should we stand and wonder that God would come from the highest to the lowest to save us? Oh, we should wonder at it. How could we accuse him, then, of not caring? How could we say he's distant, he doesn't care about us, he's not concerned about my suffering? God draws much nearer than a whirlwind. In the Christmas account, he comes as a human. He has all power he draws near in our suffering. And that's what we find in the birth of Jesus. But finally, let's ask, what about Job's desire? Remember, he wanted a mediator. He wanted somebody to stand between himself and God. God was so great and holy and awesome. If only somebody could come between us and, 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 and fix things, lay hands on both of us and bear the wrath of God so I don't need to be scared of him anymore, Job said. That desire is never fulfilled by the end of the book. God does appear, but there's no mediator between the whirlwind and Job. And we're left hanging. But in the New Testament, we see Job's desire finally fulfilled. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is Job's mediator, the one he wanted. Job said, God is not a man, but incredibly, God became a man to become the mediator, to step between sinful humanity, us and our sin, and a holy God that we could never access. He's so holy. Jesus came to step between us and God and take the rod of God's wrath on the cross so no dread or fear of God need terrify us any more. In fact, Job called him, remember, in chapter 19, a redeemer. Redeemer from what? Well, from our sin, from all that this weary world pushes upon us, the sin and darkness, the punishment it deserves. Jesus redeems us from that. And he says, Job does in chapter 19, that after our flesh is destroyed, after we die, yet we will see God. So there's hope for resurrection, eternal life. What a thrill of hope for us. We know Jesus accomplished this. He came. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again, conquering death, born not just as a man, but came and died this shameful death and rose again to stand between us and God that he might bring us together, to take our hand and put our hand into the hand of the Father so we can be forgiven, redeemed, brought near, reconciled. Job, like all those in the Old Testament, only saw this in part, but he knew he needed a mediator. And Jesus is that for us. How incredible. Well, in conclusion, there's a Christmas carol uh, that maybe you thought of as I was talking about wondering and wandering. It's somewhat unfamiliar. I wonder as I wander. Ever heard of it? It's in our hymn book. It's an Appalachian folk song actually circled around in, in our kind of neck of the woods before it was written down. The first verse goes like this. I wonder as I wander out under the sky that Jesus, my Savior, did come for to die for poor, ornery people like you and like I. I wonder as I wander out under the sky. Are you wandering today, lost in your sin, perhaps, lost in hopelessness, questioning God? What should you do? Well, you should wander while you wander until you wander no more. Lift your eyes past the suffering of this life and behold Him. Look to Him. Look to Jesus born in the manger. Maybe you have a nativity or you'll pass one on your way home. Look at that and think, wow, Christ was born, came down that low for me, for me. He came down, wondered, adore Him, worship Him. He is the thrill of hope for our weary world and for our weary you, wherever you're at. Perhaps you say, well, no, not me. I've done too much. I've wandered too much. I've accused God of too much in my pain. Well, friends, if God welcomed Job back to himself with open arms after all we read Job accused God of, then he will welcome you. In fact, we've learned in the Psalms that God loves it when we're honest in our pain to him and we lament before him, and yet we still come to him. So come, all you unfaithful. Come, you hopeless, you broken, those who feel like running away, come. But I'm too sinful, you say. Well, he's the mediator, the mediator for you. He requires nothing of you but that you come. In fact, the only qualification he wants you to have is that you admit you have no qualifications at all and are coming to him to be redeemed, to be rescued. Now, this brings us to a Calvary tradition that we almost skipped this year, but we cannot. We did the scripture reading with the kids. Uh, Brother Don sang Oh, Holy Night. Well, there's another Calvary Christmas tradition. Normally, Pastor Andrew fulfills it, but today I shall step into his great shoes and do it. And that is criticizing a Christmas song. Did you notice he never did? I told him you didn't do it, so I'm going to do it. So here we go as we wrap up our time. The song I shall criticize this year is The Little Drummer Boy. Now, do not weep and gnash teeth. If you like the song, it has some things to commend itself. The little boy, he has no gift to offer. He plays his drum for Christ. Jesus smiles at him. It's great. But two things I don't like about this song. One, a very practical concern. When we had Paris earlier this year, I could tell you the very last thing we would have ever wanted in the universe was for one of our accomplished cajonists, Will, Cadence, Franco, Aaron, to come walking into our hospital room carrying the cajon and say, well, I just have a, a, a drum solo for you, this, uh, this for you, the newborn. I would just really like to share that from my heart. Uh, I, I can't imagine Mary actually smiled at him. Uh, this is outside of scripture. We know this didn't happen, but just doesn't seem to be very realistic for a newborn. But secondly, much more importantly, uh, the song seems to imply, I heard this on a podcast and I couldn't get it out of my mind, that if we play our best for Jesus, then he will smile at us. But friends, Jesus smiles at us even if we come with nothing to offer. We don't have any gold, frankincense, or myrrh. We don't even have a drum solo to play. We have no skills. And yet still, he smiles at us. In fact, all we bring to him are our sin and our muck, the sort of stuff the Bonji would have to clean out, the sort of stuff that would have been there on the floor of the manger. That's all we have to offer, filthy rags or worse in our sin. Yet still, he smiles at us. Doing our best for Jesus still leaves us falling short. But the good news is, his smile can't be earned, but is freely given to all who simply come to him. So come. Come to him. He cares. He's not distant. He came in that manger. So come and behold him and wonder at him, no matter where you've wandered. As for the believer, have you lost your wonder this Christmas season? Is everything kind of seeming stale, empty, hopeless? wearying. You too should lift your eyes and behold him. The story is old but it's still true. It's read every year but it's still new. You can let your pain and suffering drive you into a season of hopelessness, of wandering, in these dark days of winter, looking back at perhaps a terrible year or you can let your suffering only develop in you a longing, a desire for someone to come and put things right. And he will come. He will come again. You can choose to behold him, the God of the whirlwind, the God of the manger. You can choose to wonder, to worship him. Know without a doubt today, my friend, that God is near, that God cares for you. Behold your suffering, and you'll wander. But behold your God. Take those binoculars. Look them up at God. Behold him. Came down, born as a baby, died for your sins, and you'll wonder. You'll worship him. Even as you have to take the lights down, you have to store the nativity away, you have to start the dreadful New Year diet, uh, you have to realize the wonder of the season is done. But just because the wonder of the Christmas season is done does not mean that we should lose the wonder of our Savior being born for us. Friends, today, wherever you're at, believer, or if you're just questioning all of this, Christ was born for you. Think about that. Dwell on that. And if you have any questions, we would love to talk to you about how you can know more about this God. Let's pray, and then we'll close with one last song. Oh God, we are so full of sin. You know us. You know every question we've asked this year, even if it's just been in our own hearts. You know every circumstance that's happened to us this year, all the good and the bad, and all that's even happened today. Lord, we are so easily disappointed and these things of life easily disappoint us. They're, they're not satisfying. Uh, they're discouraging. They're wearying. Oh, Lord, please direct our gaze to you today. As we go about the busyness, as we enjoy time with family or just go home to the quietness, oh, Lord, help us to behold you. Reveal yourself to us. Show yourself in your word and in your ch- in Your church as we gather in the new year how great and awesome and glorious you are. Lord, lift yourself high in our minds lift up your son so we can see him and all the glory of his birth all year long lord please help us behold you and wonder and worship you today encourage hearts this morning those who don't know you draw them to you today lord we pray in jesus name